You're listening to Light 360 with Tim Jacobs on KXEG, The Trumpet. There are some who call me Tim. Welcome, Valley of the Sun and around the world, Tim Jacobs here. Thank you for joining me on Life 360 with Tim Jacobs, your one-hour wad with God, your spiritual Zumba class. It is the thigh master for your soul. This is the show that demonstrates how a Christian worldview can transform every area of your life, which is why we call it Life 360. Now we are live here on Life 360 with Tim Jacobs on 1280 KXEG in Phoenix. So you're going to want to call us 602-368-3776. Call up, talk to my producer, Mark. Say, hey, I want to get on the show. I want to talk to this guy because we have so many things to talk about today. I can't, I don't even know how we're going to fit it into one hour. You can also listen to us anywhere in the world by going to the station website, 1280kxeg.com, and download that app. You'll see it on the homepage right there on the right side, and you can go to the TuneIn radio app and find 1280kxeg and stream it from there. Now, I also want to tell you, I have launched a new Facebook page, which is yet another avenue with which you can connect with me. So just go to Facebook, type Life360 with Tim Jacobs in the thing, and it, you can like my page. It will be uh, a way for us to be able to connect, and you'll get more updates from me. And I promise not to overpost and make your life annoying. But uh, you'll get uh, all kinds of good stuff. Like I said, we have a packed show. Going to talk at the bottom of the hour with Susan Meisner. She is a very prolific author. Just came out with a new book she's written called Secrets of a Charmed Life. Now you're thinking, Tim, you're going to, that sounds kind of like a, a, a women's novel. And actually it is. It's a historical novel. And, you know, ladies, rather than going out this weekend and kind of wasting your soul on Fifty Shades of Grey, we're going to talk instead with a woman who's actually written something substantive, elevating, engaging, that not only appeals to women's audience, but also a male audience as well, but deals with a lot of women's issues, life from a perspective of a woman. And it's awesome. You know, because I know a lot of, and I've talked, I've heard a lot of ladies saying, oh, we're so excited about going to see Fifty Shades of Grey and they've read the book. Everything I've heard, by the way, is just this movie is a disaster. It's a disaster. So far, the only person who has liked it has been Kim Kardashian. At least that's what I've heard. So um, if you like Kim Kardashian, if you think she has a corner on what is amazing and substantive and will make you a better woman, then go out and see it. But I'm not going to spend the whole time ripping the movie. I think the movie is going to basically end up ripping itself. It's got a lot of press and everyone um, seems to be, it's got, it's got a lot of buzz. I will say this, however, about it. Ladies, and I'm just going to shoot straight with you. Because they've saying how much this movie appeals to women and how even I read somewhere in Europe they're going to have female-only showings in the theaters for this movie. And I'll just shoot straight with you. Ladies, if you go see this movie, that's fine. But then just say, okay, while your husband's at home, tell him he can just go ahead and watch an hour and a half of porn. Because that's basically what you're going to go do. That's basically what it is. I mean, I don't know how else to say it. So I mean, I'm not angry about it. I'm not lashing out about it. It's just that I believe it's a, it's quite a time waster for you 
And I don't think it makes you a better person at all. I don't think it, it will make you think. Uh, I don't think it will make you feel proud and happy to be a woman. Um, I just think it uh, would be rather degrading for you. But however, we've got a lot of other things to talk about. But if you want to call and talk about that, you can. We are at uh, 602-368-3776. Two items in the news that I guess we're getting used to, and I don't think it's good that we're getting used to it. Today in AZ, in Arizona, we are um, we're mourning the murder of 26-year-old Kayla Mueller. Kayla Mueller was captured. Um, she was kidnapped and captured by ISIS in Syria, um, August of 2013. The thing about Kayla, she was in terms of Arizona, as far as Arizona is concerned, she's local. She was a native of Prescott, graduate of Tri-City College Prep in Prescott, um, went on to NAU, graduated with a degree in political science. She was captured in Aleppo, after leaving a Doctors Without Borders hospital, somewhere in there was where she disappeared. She was on a humanitarian mission trying to serve and care for those who were victims of the civil war going on there in Syria. She was not a combatant. She was not uh, an enemy, but she was captured. And the brave warriors of ISIS thought they would prove themselves brave by murdering an innocent woman. And I guess the question I want to ask you, here's the thing that bothers me. Do you care? Does it make you mad? Because I think, I think two years ago, we'd be just hopping mad about this. I mean, we would just be, we would be shocked. We would be appalled. We'd be calling for action. We'd be saying, what in the world? Who are these people? But you know, another week starts and another American is murdered at the hands of ISIS. But hey, you know, I don't like to get too political around here, but can I just, again, I just got to shoot straight with you. I, I don't know. Do we get mad or do we just do what our president said and say, lest we get on our high horse and think this is unique to some other place. Remember that during the Crusades and the Inquisition, people committed terrible deeds in the name of Christ. So 800 years ago, some Christians did some bad things. So when you see more Americans... 26-year-old women going over a humanitarian mission, non-combatants being murdered. Well, what do you do? It's just another day in paradise, right? It's just, we have gotten used to this, my friends. I, I don't know. I mean, does it, does it bother you or is it like you come home from work? Hey, honey, what happened today? Oh, did you hear there was a, a woman murdered, an American woman murdered by ISIS? Oh yeah, well, what else happened today? is it just doesn't seem to shock us anymore. And that's the scariest part about it to me is we hear it and it'll make headline news for like a day. Just like last week, the Jordanian bomb, the Jordanian fighter pilot who was burned alive. And we just kind of move on. It's a scary thing, my friends, because there's a desensitization that is growing in our culture about the brutality of these people and and yet and then our ability to really respond in any way or now even being checked. Well, you know what? Just take a deep breath and realize that, you know, we've done some bad things as well. You mad about that? By the way, when it comes to the Crusades, um, listen, I'm not here to give you a history lesson on the Crusades, but I do think we need to kind of educate ourselves about the very confusing, complicated time. I would suggest starting and you can get a, a pen and a piece of paper out or maybe type this in your phone. I would, I would get a book by Rodney Stark called God's Battalions. And I would start there 
and maybe I would get myself a little more educated about the Crusades, not defending everything that Christians did, but I would put my, I would try to get a little bit of context before I just said, well, you know, a long time ago, we did bad stuff as well. I think we can be a little sharper and think a little more clearly than that. Second thing that occurred, and again, this just is like right over our heads, right? It hit the news and it's like, okay, what's next? Same-sex marriage passed in Alabama. That's the news that landed yesterday. There are some counties, I guess, that are refusing to enact it and some things that I just read an article saying that there's chaos in implementing this new allowance, but that's probably just delaying the inevitable. And um, that leads me to another edition of Heavy Theological Reflections. Uh, is it heavy stuff, man? <laughs> Will it blow me away? Great Scott! I know this is heavy. Yes, it is heavy. And I'll tell you why it's heavy. Because you know what, my friends? We've never really bothered to have a serious debate about same-sex marriage. What happened was the, the side against same-sex marriage took a lot of heat. Got tired of being called haters, got tired of being called mean, got tired of being for inequality. And so we just kind of said, you know what? Forget it. So what I want to do for the next couple of minutes, and again, like I said, we have an interview coming up at the bottom of the hour with Susan Meisner. It's going to be a fantastic, very engaging, very interesting interview. I want to make sure you stick around for that. But I want to talk for a few moments about same-sex marriage. And it's funny because people will come to me and they'll say, Tim, are you going to talk about same-sex marriage on the radio? I go, yeah, what's the big deal? Oh, you, that's that's scary stuff. You, you're going to actually talk about that? Aren't you afraid of the backlash? And I say, no, I'm not afraid of the backlash. I'll tell you what I'm afraid of. I'm afraid of groupthink. I'm afraid of everybody buying the, the, the line that's being given to us from the mainstream media, from, academic, from the, acad- the academic world, from social media, and we just kind of go along like a bunch of lemmings. So can we, here's the problem. We never bothered to stop and have the debate in the country and ask ourselves, is this a good thing for America? Well, them some heavy words, Paul Blart. Well, they... Hey, life is heavy. Yeah, life is heavy, and these are heavy words. Thanks for that, Mark. Now, the thing is, so let me just throw a couple of thoughts out there for you. If you want to talk about this, give me a call, 602 368 Three seven seven six. Now, I would say this, first of all, and again, I know I'm speaking to largely a Christian audience, although some of you may not be Christ- a Christian, and that's okay. I'm glad you're listening to me. I want to just ask you to think for a moment. Before you, before you emote, before you get angry, before you lash out with hater and all the other epithets that, that characterize the other side in your mind. First of all, as a Christian, we have to believe that marriage is first and foremost exists for the glory of God. It does not exist for the purpose of individual happiness per se. Happiness is a byproduct. It is a goal. It is important. It is huge, but it is not the number one primary reason for marriage. Marriage exists for the glory of God to radiate a relationship that consists of both a man and a woman. Why? Because in the book of Genesis, the Bible says that that God created man in his own image, male and female. He created them. So there is a male aspect of the image of God and a female aspect of the image of God. That is critical, that is based, that is foundational to the whole understanding, my friends. So we start there and say, you have both of these pieces that now are a picture when they are brought to a oneness, that that picture is a picture of the complete image of God, at least as complete as we can get it being finite, imperfect, fallen beings. 
So that picture is what is displayed to the earth and the reciprocal love between a man and a woman created differently, but equal in the eyes of God as the image of God. That image is to be displayed to the world. So the world would look at that and go, man, that's beautiful. That's beautiful. God must exist and he must be good. God must exist and I want to know who he is. So fundamentally, that's the first thing. The second thing we have to understand is that marriage predates government. Meaning marriage is not, they say, well, marriage is a, co- a social construct of government. No, it's not. Marriage predates government because you could not have a government until you had people and you could not have people until you had the union of a man and a woman in the bonds of marriage. You with me? So marriage predates government. Government cannot dictate marriage. It can only describe marriage, much as in a map. So if you have a map and there is a mountain that has existed since time began and you, you're, you're exploring and you go, look, there's a mountain over there and you get a piece of paper out and you say, I'm going to draw a map where the mountain is. You are showing everybody, you're recognizing something that's part of nature. It exists. It is a fact. And the fact is that marriage is part of nature, just as a mountain or a lake or a river is part of nature. So all we can do is then is then mark what these things are and where they are. We recognize them. We don't define them. Now, there are people who have said, well, you know, the reason that we need to have same-sex marriage, and they use the phrase marriage equality, which again, my friends, if you own the language, you own the argument. Marriage equality is a, not a, is, is, it is an inaccurate, deceptive, and misleading statement. It just is. But let's say, for example, people say, well, the the reason we should have same-sex marriage is much like the reason that uh, the government stepped in a a long time ago and and banned or or said, no, um, we need to have uh, interracial marriage is okay. So for a long long time ago, there was a time when certain um, in certain parts of our country, people of different races could not get married, could not get married. So they say or, or could not marry each other. You could not have interracial marriage. So, so a, a, an African-American cannot marry a Caucasian. And there's certain parts of our country at a certain time where that was illegal. And so we say, see, just as, the, as those rights were given to people and say, we, government had to step in and say, no, you can get married in the same way we need to tell people of same sex they can get married. So they've used interracial marriage as an argument now as another step forward for approving same sex marriage. But let me tell you where that argument breaks down. And you need to roll with me because this is going to actually require you to think. An article written by Francis Beckwith called Interracial Marriage and Same-Sex Marriage. It it's, uh, can be found at um, thepublicdiscourse.com. It was written back in 2010. And what Francis Beckwith says, when you look historically at marriage, you realize that, that it has always been common law, that there was never a ban on interracial marriage. Marriage in common law since the beginning throughout time has always been recognized as a man and a woman, regardless of race. Now there came a point in history where certain states and certain municipalities in our country passed laws that said, we do not want races, we do not want interracial marriage. And so they put a ban on it. And so what would happen is then they would prevent this from happening. But what he makes the point in saying is in order to do that, they had to alter the definition of marriage. Now understand what they did. Marriage has always been between a man and a woman, regardless of race, until the government stepped in and said, no, it is no longer about a man and a woman. It is about a white man and a white woman. 
or a black man and a black woman. Now we are, see, we are redefining marriage. Are you with me? The government redefined marriage when it instituted interracial marriage or the, the ban on interracial marriage. Do you understand what I'm saying? From all that time before that, when the government left it alone, it was common law that a male and a, and a female could get married regardless of their race. There was never a ban on it to begin with until the government stepped in. Now, what's fascinating about this is that when this law, when these laws were put into place in various parts around the country in certain states, the other reason was not just simply from a racial uh, purity standpoint, but it also got into the scientific argument and that of eugenics. Darwinian thought. The idea of a master race, that some races are superior to others, right? Because we evolved differently, therefore we are not the same. There are some races that evolve in a superior fashion, and we've got to keep the purity of the genes. And so secular science in the 1930s drove the push for anti-interracial marriage. He writes this. The overwhelming consensus among scholars is the reason for these laws, that is laws that, that uh, ban interracial marriage, was to enforce racial purity, an idea that begins its cultural ascendancy with the commencement of race-based slavery of Africans in the early 17th century America and eventually receives the imprimatur of science when the eugenics movement comes of age in the late 19th and early 20th century. Science drove this. Science, I'm not saying science as an observation and, you know, and, and uh, all the, the scientific method. I'm not, I'm talking about capital S science, secularism, saying there's no God, so we're just going to believe in science in place of God. I'm not talking about science as in the scientific, as in we can all observe, we can test, we can reproduce in a laboratory, that kind of science. I'm talking about capital S science. Are you with me? Understand that the, the, so one of the main arguments of same-sex marriage is, well, listen, it's wrong to ban interracial marriage, so we shouldn't ban same-sex marriage. But understand, the only reason interracial marriage was banned was because of the government. Before that, the, when the government left it alone, when the government just simply recognized a man and a woman, they're the ones that redefined marriage in the first place. Now, listen to what he says. This is very, very important. By injecting race into the equation, anti-interracial marriage supporters were very much like contemporary same-sex marriage proponents. For in both cases, they introduced a criterion other than male-female complementarity in order to promote the goals of a utopian social movement, race purity or sexual egalitarianism. Do you see that? In, so the same people who are the proponents of same-sex marriage have the same line of thinking, strategy, and tactics as those who were against interracial marriage. They're using the government to accomplish the strategic ends of a utopian society that alters the definition of marriage as it has always been understood. So the next time someone says to you, well, you're just like those people who want to ban interracial marriage, you turn around and say, no, 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 no. You are, because you are the one who wants to alter the definition of marriage as it has always been known. That is between a man and a woman. Having the government step in and alter it has been the tactic of those who want to separate the races, not of those who do not. He goes on to say this. You need to listen to this. This is why in both cases, the advocates require state coercion to enforce their goals. 
Without the state's cooperation and enforcement, there would have been no anti-interracial marriage laws and there would be no same-sex marriage. The reason for this, writes libertarian economist Jennifer Roback Morse, is that, quote, marriage between men and women is a pre-political, naturally emerging social institution. Men and women come together to create children independently of any government. She goes on to say this, and this is the, this is the, the, the kicker. Same-sex marriage is completely a creation of the state. Same-sex couples cannot have children. Someone must give them a child or at least half the genetic material to create a child. The state must detach the parental rights of the opposite sex parent and then attach those rights to the second parent of the same sex couple. Now, is this the biggest argument of same, uh, for or against same sex marriage? No. But this is the kind of stuff I'm talking about. We didn't take the time to think about it. And ladies, I want to talk to you for a second because I'm going to talk in just a moment to Susan Meisner. This is going to be a show that really I think is going to elevate you. And we're going to get into some really cool um, issues about what it means to be a woman living in a very challenging time throughout history. It's going to be awesome. But I want to talk to my, my, my female listeners for a minute because I got to be honest with you guys. Many of you, at least in terms of what the polls say, are, are supportive of same-sex marriage. And I got to be honest with you and say, I don't understand that. And here's why. Because women throughout the last hundred years, especially have fought long and hard to be represented in politics, in entertainment, sports, in business, in education, in all walks of life. We have striven very hard to make sure there is a quota of some type of women. So it's not just a man's world. And in, in large part, women have done a, a fabulous job in that regard. And yet in five or what, five, six, seven years, women effectively agreed with the idea that the state can recognize a family as intact and complete without you. There can be two men and a couple of children. And the state says that is an intact, complete family without a woman, that a child can grow up and be perfectly healthy and normal and fine without ever having not a mother, but even the possibility of a mother. Ladies, those of you who think that this is a good idea, I got to be honest with you. I think you kind of bought the farm. We say, well, yeah, but there's, there's, there's same-sex female couples. No, of course there are, but, the, but men react differently. Men are like, fine, if you don't want me in the family, fine, I'll just go away. It's just less things for me to have to deal with. That's the, way a lot of, that's the attitude of a lot of men. Hey, I didn't really want a commitment anyway. But what you have is you have the state now saying that, that women are not really necessary for a family. And, and, you, and you went along with that. You agreed with that. You said, this is a good idea. We think it's wonderful that the government should look and recognize it. So you say, well, what about single parent families? What about a single father? That's true. A single father can have a successful family and raise children. Absolutely. But there's always the possibility that, that a woman could enter into the picture and complete that family. But you have a same-sex married couple, the possibility of, of where there's two men, the possibility is removed. Those children will never grow up with a mother and you as a proponent of same-sex marriage say you're fine with that. I don't get it. I just, I just don't get it. I, I, I don't know. I thought women, I thought women had more value than that. I look at, I look at the, the contribution that my wife has made as a woman 
to our three children, our three children will be lost without my wife. First of all, they would starve half the time. And if they did eat, it would be pizza. Like my, my buddy, Mike, his wife went away for the weekend and he said, well, what I did was I turned Lunchables into dinnerables. That was his idea of, you know, feeding his kids. But the other thing I'd say is this, for those of you Christians who are buying into the idea and go, ah, let's just forget it. It's too late. Let's just go ahead and, and, uh, let's just, it's, it's happening. The tide, the wave's too big. Let's just ride it. Let's not fight it. You know, let me ask you a question from a Christian perspective. Because there are churches, there's just another church in Tennessee, a mega church, and it's 1,800 people. 1,800 people in Tennessee is not really a mega church, especially Nashville, but whatever. But this guy, and I don't know his name, he, uh, he said, yeah, let's go ahead and have same-sex marriage. It's cool. He's the, the, the senior pastor of that. Here's my question. Here's my question. If you are, oh, this guy, Stan Mitchell of Grace Point, church in Nashville. He says, yeah, it's fine. Well, same-sex marriage is good. We'll, we'll just treat it like any other marriage. Here's my question to you, Pastor, Pastor Mitchell. Two guys come in who are married and they sit down with you for marriage counseling. We're having problems in our marriage. Can you help us? What do you say to them? See, as a pastor, the scripture gives me no guidance for how to counsel a man to be a better husband to a man. I don't know how to do that. I don't know what to say. I don't know what to say to two women who walk in to my office and say, we're having marriage problems. Can you please help us have a better marriage? I don't, ha- I don't know what to say because the only thing I can know how to do, the only thing the scripture teaches me to do is how a man can be better to meet the needs of his wife who is made uniquely as a female. And that female has certain characteristics of value. I don't understand how to counsel a woman to be a better wife to a woman. I don't have the language for it. So I don't know how a pastor expects to counsel a same-sex marriage couple. And here's the other thing, folks. Those of you who think, ah, you know, whatever, we'll just live with it. What do you say to a man who walks into a church who's a homosexual and says, you know what, man, I, I've, I've, I, see, I see the love of Jesus. I've seen my, my life has been changed. I, I want to I surrender my life to Jesus. And you know what? I'm reading the scripture and there's, there's some pretty strong statements about the homosexual lifestyle. I don't I actually convicted. I don't think I should live this way anymore. I'm not saying that I can just automatically change. No one's saying that, but I'm just saying I shouldn't practice this anymore. But he's married and he's got two kids because the state allowed him to, to do that. Now he's in a marriage relationship and he comes to you and says, man, I, I, I don't want to, no, I no longer want to fulfill my, my, my duty to my spouse, maritally speaking, sexually speaking. And I don't want to be married anymore. What is a pastor going to say? Because the scripture also says, I hate divorce. And, and you say, well, yeah, but it's not really a marriage in the eyes of God. You can say you can make that state. Well, the state recognizes it and you can make, but you've got two children living in the household. What are you going to say to that guy? Well, you got to move out. You got to split up. And the children go, I don't understand that. I got I just two guys. They're my two dads. I love them both. And now they both live apart and the church made them do this. I don't understand. Now, listen, I understand these issues are going to come up no matter what, but when the church says it's okay, do they, does, the, does the church have any idea how in the world they're going to handle the natural fallout from this? Because I don't think, I don't, and here it goes back to my original point. My friends, we just never thought about it. We never thought about it. We just said, we feel bad limiting people and, not, and we feel bad feeling that we are promoting inequality. 
And we never stop to have the conversation to say, you know what, there may be some people who don't get what they want in society, but we have to do and act in the best interest of what is good for what promotes a society that flourishes and functions and grows and follows, yes, follows nature, follows nature. And what does nature do? Ladies, you kicked yourself out of the family. Oh yeah, there's be plenty of families with two, but you kick, You now said a family doesn't need me. That's a scary place for you to be, ladies, because what's gonna happen is now we don't really need you. We need your womb. We need your eggs. But if we can reproduce that in a laboratory, we really don't need you. We need you for your plumbing. After that, get out of here. I don't want you. We, we're gonna take your child and we'll raise them on our own. Is that, I guess, but that's where we are. And I, I don't understand that. I wish that someone would help me under, I wish a woman would call me and say, Tim, let me tell you why it's okay that we, we gave a, an amen to the fact that women, you can have an intact family without a woman. I, I, don't, I don't get it. No one has been able to explain to me. I've, I've looked, I've talked to groups of women about this and said, ladies, I just don't get it. A lot of you guys think it's not a big deal. You bought the farm and they look at me like, with a face is like, uh-oh, yeah, I never thought about that. So you've done a great job in, in, in gaining ground in all these other areas, but the most foundational area of all of society, the family, you say, you are optional. And I just don't hear anybody else talking about this. I don't hear anybody else talking about this. Does this bug you? It shouldn't bug you. I'm just, just trying to think about these things. These are big issues. This is Life 360 with Tim Jacobs. I'm Tim Jacobs, and we'll be right back with Susan Meisner. Hi there, Tim Jacobs here. I want to talk to all of my listeners living in the Phoenix area. And if you're like me, you're trying to stay active, and sometimes maybe your ego is writing checks that your body can't cash. And if you find yourself getting hurt, maybe you pulled something, and you don't want it to sideline you, you need to go see my friends at ChiroFit. They are a full-service chiropractor, massage, physical therapy, and they have locations all over the valley. They have one in Buckeye and in Peoria, Tempe. They just opened up another location in Avondale. Go to chirofitgroup.com. That's chirofitgroup.com. Or call them at 623-773-2000 and just tell them. Say, I'm hurting and I need help. And they will get right on it and you can go down there and you can start feeling better today. So again, chirofitgroup.com and tell them that Tim Jacobs sent you. Life 360 with Tim Jacobs. I am Tim Jacobs. And you know... Valentine's Day is coming up. Guys, have you made your reservations yet? Have you done it? My son and I were just, we were talking in the car earlier and I always try to drip stuff into him, you know, and just kind of give him the best advice I can. And, and I said, you know, son, if, if, you're, if the woman in your life says, oh, don't get me anything for Valentine's Day. I'm, I'm good. You cannot believe that. Okay. You've got to just 
she's not telling the truth. You better go figure it out. But I want actually, I, I've made reservations for my wife. We're going to have a nice dinner on um, on uh, Saturday night, which is Valentine's Day. We're going to go to a cool place downtown and just have a good time. But I want to just throw that out, out there at you because, guys, you better be thinking about Valentine's Day. This is my little helpful reminder to you. But if you want to do something, I think that would be kind of a very cool gift that you can do is go out, go to Barnes & Noble um, or go on Amazon and get Rush shipped. Secrets of a Charmed Life. This is a brand new novel that just came out February 3rd last week, written by Susan Meisner that I think, and by by telling the, by giving her this novel, you're saying, honey, um, you are smart, you are you are a thinker, and I just want to like feed that part of your soul. And you can buy her flowers and chocolates and take her to a nice romantic dinner as well, but I think this just really will communicate to her that you love her intellectual side as well. Well, I am very privileged to welcome on the Life on Life 360 with Tim Jacobs, Susan Meisner. Susan, how are you? I'm great. Thank you for having me. Well, I'm so glad that you joined me. And um, you have written a book here, and I want to talk to you about this for a variety of reasons, not the least of which, uh, right now, the, the culture is, uh, many in our culture are really excited about the um, the movie Fifty Shades of Grey that's coming out this this Saturday. And of course, that follows the novel, this novel series that came out. And and I'm not, I'm certainly not going to ask you to, to critique that. I'll do that myself. But, but really saying, what is the message that are being sent there? Even look Looking at some of the reviews saying, you know, this is just, yeah, it's tantalizing and it's kind of, it's got a lot of, it's got a lot of um, people talking about it. But really, in all honesty, these books are just bad prose. And so there's not written very well. And so um, as I had some through some other conversations, I learned about you and, and here's someone who's writing really, really good prose. Here's someone that's writing really deep stuff that's engaging and entertaining as well. And so I wanted to just have you on the show to talk about this book and to talk a little bit about you. Now you have, how many novels Susan Meisner have you written? Well, I think this one makes number 16. 16? That is crazy. How do you write so many novels? Well, I um, you know, I waited a while to get started. I put it off for a long time. So when I finally got going 10 years ago, I was really motivated to to write. And so I had a lot of ideas swirling in my head. And actually, once I get going on a novel, um I I I can write pretty fast. That's just how I write. More of a microwave writer than a crockpot. Yeah. And so writing one a year, I mean, that's still a lot. I'm not saying it's easy, but it's kind of a good cycle for me. It fits me. Now, you have uh, SusanMeisner.com is your website. I want to encourage everyone to visit SusanMeisner.com, and we can find out more about you, your books, and and how to keep in touch with you there. And you're on Twitter as well, right? I am. Yep. My, it's just my name. My handle is my name. Yep. Okay. Susan Meisner. That's uh, M-E-I-S-S-N-E-R. Let's talk about Secrets of a Charmed Life. Give us a little bit of a picture of what this story is about. Well, my, my brand, the, the kind of novel I like to write is a, is a book that has two time periods that are somehow related to each other. And so this one is a, is a story about a college student who's studying abroad in Oxford, and she's interviewing a woman who's um, been rather reclusive about her life, but she's agreed to be interviewed by this college student about her experiences during uh, the London Blitz. She's a survivor of the London Blitz. And so we go from this um, quaint little living room of this 
older woman being interviewed by this college student to um, war-torn London during um, the, the first years of World War II. So it's fiction. Um, and I want to make that point, too, that, that you are a Christian, and but this is not a an explicitly Christian book. In fact, it can be found in the fiction literature section of a Barnes Noble or any kind of bookstore. Is that right? That's correct. I began my, my writing career in, in uh, for a Christian publishing house. I wrote for two different Christian publishing houses and, and wrote um, a dozen novels that way. But I found, um, I, I found that I was itching to try my hand at the general marketplace so that we could have a voice there. Um, and so now I'm writing for Penguin. It is a general marketplace book, but I, I don't think I have had to change anything about the way I write. My faith thread has always been very, very subtle. I really, mm-hmm. uh, I, I write more about virtues that um, spring from my Christian worldview, and um, it's, the virtue of love um, transcends mm-hmm. a lot of different, what we would call denominational lines, and so if I write about Christian love, um, it's going to come across as love, as sacrificial love, and that's, that's a metaphor, of course, for Christ's love, but yeah. it's also something that a, a broader audience could understand. Well, and I love that because from being being a Christian and being an artist, because really this this is art, obviously, so oftentimes I think the the secular world has kind of commandeered the the whole uh, the whole genre of, of of all the art, and so you know you've got uh, we we don't really associate art with Christianity, and yet what you're trying to do, and I, I I would encourage other artists to do this as well, is just produce things that that are that are that like it says in Philippians, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is good, whatever is pure dwell on those things and and there and there can you can find redemption in that and everybody whether they're a believer or not a non-believer will can be attracted to things that where there really is beauty and i think that really is kind of what you're trying to do with these novels right i think so i think you know in the 70s when we had this um, burst of christian publishing houses mm-hmm. and suddenly there was a place to go for christian fiction and which, which which was good because yeah. people wanted um, they wanted a read that didn't make them blush that didn't have bedroom stuff and profanity, and so we had this burst of Christian publishing, and all of a sudden there were Christian novels that you could read and feel good about. And what happened then is, um, besides that be- becoming a place to find Christian novels, it was a place to find Christian authors, and so they all went there. <laughs> yeah, you know, all the Christian authors kind of went into the into that niche publishing place, which. Which is okay, except that we lost our voice right. in the general marketplace. Yeah, exactly. And a lot of times I think sometimes the stuff, and not to put it down, but it's easy because you, you so as a Christian, you want other people to know the message of the gospel and you want to bring them to a point of decision. And so it's almost like that becomes the point and you just kind of wrap a story around that as opposed to, let's just make a really beautiful story. And those themes will, as you said, there's a subtlety to that. And that's what really makes the art compelling. I think so, too. I think fame arises out of a beautiful painting. It's like if you're a Christian painter, you don't only paint churches. You know, if you want right. to paint the Grand Canyon, you paint the Grand Canyon. Right. And that's there for the whole world to enjoy, whether you're a Buddhist or a, a Christian or whatever, or, or an agnostic. Everyone can enjoy the Grand Canyon. We're all going to look at it differently. I'm going to look at it and marvel at the, at the wonder of God. Um, but it doesn't mean that I, you know, that, that it's some other kind of um, personal, some other kind of view on life can't also enjoy the Grand Canyon. And just like a, a baker who's a Christian doesn't make Christian bread. Right. <laughs> you know, That's he, true. Bakes, he bakes bread um, to the best of his ability, and he has good, good business practices, and he wants everyone to enjoy great, wonderful bread. 
and so he's a you know he's a Christian baker baking bread, not a baker baking Christian bread. Exactly, and you have been um, you really have made a huge mark out there. I know Publishers Weekly says about you, Meisner's prose is exquisite, and she is a stunning storyteller. And you've received a, a numerous awards for your writings. But let's get into Secrets of a Charmed Life. You've got, like you said, you've got it takes place in in London during World War II, during the Blitz, when the city itself is being bombed. And I don't think people really understand that because you see the images of uniformed soldiers and the fighting there with the tanks and everything else and that's where a lot of the even the war movies and the reenactments come from but we often lose the civilian side of the tragic civilian losses that were that that occurred there especially in london talk about that well it's very true i think because of the scale of what world war ii was like um there were so many other more traumatic events you know there's everything that happened with the six million jews and the warsaw ghetto and pearl harbor and the baton death march and all the occupations that that you see happening over on mainland europe you know the the nazis were never able to occupy england so we kind of of tend to forget how much Mm -hmm. london suffered but they were bombed relentlessly for for months and um, many many people died in the east end of london and hundreds of thousands of homes were destroyed but it's kind of a, a part of the war that gets a little bit forgotten because it wasn't on the scale um, as, as some of these other events. We're talking with Susan Meisner, author of the brand new Secrets of a Charmed Life. And guys, I'm going to tell you, if you don't have a Valentine's gift for your wife, go out and buy it for her. Now, I don't want to just pigeonhole this as a women's book. Obviously, both women and men can read and enjoy this, especially because you have done a considerable amount of research. And while the story is a a fictional story, it's got a lot of historical truth in it. But walk us through... The, the characters, there's two young girls that were basically fleeing from their families and everything they knew. Walk us through the characters a little bit. Well, I have these two sisters who are evacuated out of the city, which was the case for a million children. Mm-hmm. In fact, if you've read C.S. Lewis's The Chronicles of Narnia, you know that those four children were evacuated out of the city to the professor's house in the country. And yeah. that's, that's something that happened for many, many, many children. And it wasn't an easy thing for parents to do because you didn't know where your kids were going to end up. You know, they got on a bus or a train, and a week later, you you know, you get a postcard saying, well, this is the family who has your children. And, you know, that, that evacuation happened in 1940, and the war didn't end until 1945. So we're talking mm-hmm. five years. Yeah. For a child, that's separated. an eternity. It's Yeah, it was an incredibly um, difficult time for parents and children. Yeah. So out of, out of that scenario, I, I have these two sisters who are evacuated to the countryside. And without running the story for you, I can right. tell you that they don't stay in the country and then something happens, it kind of changes everything. What are the themes that, that readers are going to discover in this book? Well, for me, I think um, the, the girl that's at the forefront of the story, her name is Emmy, she's a little young, a little naive, and she wants to be grown up. You know, she wants to, and she's actually, war is an adult is an adult thing, and, mm-hmm. and children who live with war have to almost grow up too fast kind of thing. And so she's dealing with all of these very difficult adult-type you know, situations with that with just the, you know experiences of a fifteen-year-old, and so she she needs to learn that you can only play the hand that you are dealt. Mm. You know, you can't you can only um, make your own decisions. You can't decide for other people, and you can only um, be responsible for your own your own choices. And you are responsible for your own choices, but you can't hold yourself responsible for someone else's. And if you if you do, you're going to live a lifetime of regret, and that's just no way to live. 
Because there are, and especially back then, I mean, their world was falling apart and there's nothing they could do about it, you know? And so they had to make the, the choices that they made were they, they was, was literally the best that they could do for themselves at that time. And I, how is that, as we look at like today's world um, and people who are making decisions about life and, and um, how is this book going to help people think about maybe decisions that they make in their life today? Well, I would hope that people would kind of step back. If, if they read a book like this, then mm-hmm. if they can step back and think, well, what would I do if I had been that girl? You know, what what would I have done? And knowing, knowing, especially knowing what I know now. And um, I think uh, for a lot of us, um, when you make a decision, you know, whatever it might be, um, the best thing the best thing you can do is to decide how it's going to affect the people I love. You know, because in the end, um, that's that's what matters most to you is is the people that you love and who love you, and um, we're, we we tend to make the decision if we're just left to ourselves um, that's that's best for ourselves. Like mm-hmm. the whole looking out for number one kind of thing is mm-hmm. kind of an empty way to live, mm-hmm. and yet um, it's 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 the easy way to live, and it's it's far easier to decide what's best for me than it is to look at the people that you love and think you know well what's best you know what's best for the people that I love and living sacrificially like that is not is not um, the natural way it's 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 an effort on our part you know, to rise above self and think about others well it is and I think it's especially difficult in today's in I mean it's always been that way but it's so easy for us people love the idea of being famous just for the sake of being famous or it's so much as a look at me culture. It's very insecure culture, but it's also a very look at me culture. So look at me, love me, um, don't criticize me, but don't also ignore me. And and there are so many emotions wrapped up in that. But what you're saying is that in when faced with a choice of do I pursue what I want because I've got these big dreams, we tend to put a lot of we tend to put a lot of stock in dreams. We say, well, my, my, my life's goal has got to be, I've got to accomplish my dream. And if I don't, I'm a failure. What I hear you saying is maybe your life's goal should, should be, while you should pursue dreams, you also need to pursue love for those who are in your life. Am I, am I getting anywhere close there? I think so. You know, your dreams, you know, what you desire out of life, I think that changes as you mature and as you become a different, you know, I'm, I'm a different person. Um, in my 50s than I was in my 20s. And mm-hmm. so I think our goals and aspirations, they're going to morph and change. And um, they, don't, they don't have um, lasting value. You know, they're not, they're, our dreams and our aspirations are not eternal. And the only thing that lasts um, is, is love for people. <laughs> yeah. you know, people always have intrinsic value, and our dreams don't always, but people always do. And so um, when, we, when we make choices, I think... Um, the you know the the call I think on our lives is to make um, choices that um, will you know have the greatest positive effect on the people that we love. And I think that's a important. You know, I look at my own wife and and the stage that she's in right now, and we've got three kids, um, and and they're kind of school age, and I I watch her and the sacrifices. That she, and she doesn't always seem a sacrifice, but she works very hard from the, you know, we get up and, and, you know, I get to, I would say that I know that, that I work outside the home, so to speak, but really I feel like I, it's, it's like a great privilege for me to be able to go. And she was the one that really does so much of the work, but she, she, so much of where she's at in life right now is making those kind of long-term 
um, investments, I guess I'd say. And, and so much of what she does is unsung. And so much of what she does is not, you know, is not written about, or people want to come and interview her or figure out how she does it because she's just living the life of a mom, which is vitally important and very fulfilling for her. But she's making that decision out of love, not out of, you know, what can I, I get out of this? And I think that maybe this story could even bring like maybe, um, uh, what's the word I'm thinking of? Kind of confirmation to those who have made those decisions that that it is the right thing to pursue the, the depth of love when it comes to sacrificing for others. I think so. I uh, I don't usually um, think of my books as having a message, and if if there is a message, I think it's for each person to kind of extrapolate from the book what they think um, it means to them. But what I'm but what I'm rather doing, I think, is having, I want people to think um, mm-hmm. to themselves, what would I have done? Mm-hmm. Because if I'm, if I'm able to put you into the story, and if all of a sudden you're feeling what my character is feeling, and you're, you're in the story, and it feels real to you, then you can't help but ask yourself, what would I have done? And I think when, <laughs> whenever you ask yourself that, you, you, find, out, you find out more about yourself than, than you would I think if you had read a nonfiction book on how to live selflessly, do you know what I mean? It's like yep. um, if you read a, a nonfiction book about how to live, um, un, you know, unselfishly, and then you read a, a book about a character who had to make choices, and and you're and you're having to put yourself in that mm-hmm. character's shoes because you're unable not to. I think that's when you really find out what you're really made of and perhaps what, how you'd like to change. I think that's exactly right. In fact, the sad thing is, is that the genre is called fiction because really it's a misnomer almost because it's not fiction. It's, it, it, it really, more than anything else, it tells you that it's supposed to tell you the truth. And that's really what you're trying to get to. What, what is the truth about what you should do or what you could do? Or, and you, the, the reader kind of has to answer that. The reader kind of has to run their life up against the story that you've told and make you, it's kind of like almost like a mirror kind of revealing to you what, what you would have, would you've reacted the same way? And it does maybe reveal even in us questions of, Man, would I have done that? Would I have mm-hmm. stepped up in that situation? I think that's why book clubs are so popular right now is mm-hmm. because a good book that um, like fits the whole book club um, kind of um, vibe is, is because um, it, it, you just have to talk about it. Yeah. Because those characters, what they went through um, felt real to you and it felt relevant. And you're wondering, well, what would I have done? And so it, it fosters discussion about, you know, how, how would it be if, if that had been me? And, and um, mm-hmm. would I have made the same choices? And, you know, how do I, you know, what, what do I expect from the people around me and the people that I love and that kind of thing? Are people, Susan Meisner, by the way, we're talking with Susan Meisner, SusanMeisner.com, M-E-I-S-S-N-E-R.com to order your copy or go to Amazon, order your copy of Secrets of a Charmed Life. Susan Meisner, are people reading as much as they used to? You know, I think um, there's a resurgence. I think there's a resurgence of 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 people reading um, fiction, maybe not among both genders. I think women still buy most of the books. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but I don't think that, um, I don't think it's fallen too far behind um, other times, other kinds of activities that people like to do. And I don't think just um, the whole advent of digital reading has changed um, what's going to happen to books, because even though the platform may change, I don't think the need for stories is going to change. It just may you know, how, how you read a book 
um, might change. You might, you know, you might see a decrease in the number of books printed, yeah. but not in the number of stories being told. It's just the platform that's going to change. What is the what is the kind of the age or the target? I mean, if if people want to go out and buy this book, they're interested in the story. They want to learn a ton about what life would be like living in this very unique, very dangerous, very earth shattering time, and they want to get into this this story. What what would be like the like if someone who's how young do you think would someone be who's a reader that might enjoy this book? Well, I think um, you know my target audience is um, is basically the female reader, although you said it earlier, and it's true that anyone can enjoy yep. this book. But my target audience is the female reader from the age of like 20 to probably 70. It's a really wide window because um, it's, his, you know, it's basically historical fiction, which means that, you know, somebody who is 80 years old will remember probably, you know, um, being a child and what this was like, you know, this, the world the way it was yep. when they were a child. And then, of course, you know the you know the, the much much younger reader, who's looking you know looking back at history, will, would still enjoy a book like this. And so I have a, it's a wide range really of readers. Well, I got to tell you, um, you know, your husband, who is a lieutenant colonel in the Air Force, and of course that's how we met, as I'm in the Air Force as well, and he is he is my boss, and I've just gotten to, to really got to know him and and admire him and appreciate him. He he told me he said, you know, that, and he says it's not just because it's my wife, but the characters in the story they really get me, they really grip your your heart. So hey, if a lieutenant colonel in the military <laughs> can read this and be moved by it, then uh, then I think most uh, other men could as well. But like you said, it really is something for for uh for women and um so well i i so real quick susan meisner what's the next book coming out well the next one has a working title of stars over sunset boulevard so um it's a it's a it's a book set in hollywood in 1939 it was a really good year for hollywood some amazing movies were made that year including gone with the wind which is featured in in the story I have two secretaries who are the main characters who are working on the set of this epic movie. Cool. Um, yes, and it's it was kind of like a, it was the last year, you know, before um, the war really um, got started, and um, Hollywood didn't know it, but everything was about to change. You know, after the war, mm-hmm. there'd be the um, the beginning of television, and it would pretty much change everything. So, um, the end of the '30s, early '40s was kind of the golden age of Hollywood, and it, it would end, and 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 nobody knew it. Susan Meisner, thank you so much for joining me. It was, uh, it was a fun chat. I'm glad we had a thank chance to you. talk. Yeah. yeah. And um, uh, I hope to be able to see many more books. I mean, 16 novels. That's that's incredible. And and they can get the whole, people just go out, go to Amazon, read, start with Secrets of a Charmed Life, and then continue on after that and, and read all your books. I hope they do. And I appreciate you coming on the air. Thank you for having me. Thanks so much. That's Susan Meisner, SusanMeisner.com. My friends, if you want to read something elevating, something uplifting to women, something that's going to make you think and going to give you some historical perspective and really make you a better person, you got to go out and read this book. So now, Mark, do we have, how much time do we have, Mark? We have three minutes. All right. Do we have, are we, listen to this. I got two minutes left. You got to hear this. I, I read this yesterday. In a mother's womb, there were two babies. One asked the other, do you believe in life after delivery? The other replied, why, of course, there has to be something after delivery. Maybe we are here to prepare ourselves for what we will be later. 
Nonsense, said the first. There is no life after delivery. What kind of life would that be? The second said, I don't know, but there will be more light than here. Maybe we will walk with our legs and eat from our mouths. Maybe we will have other senses that we can't understand now. The first replied, that is absurd. Walking is impossible. And eating with our mouths? Ridiculous. The umbilical cord supplies nutrition and everything we need. But the umbilical cord is so short. Life after delivery is to be logically excluded. The second insisted, well, I think there's something, and maybe it's different than it is here. Maybe we won't need this physical cord anymore. The first replied, nonsense. And moreover, if there is life, then why has no one come ever, ever come back to tell us about it? Delivery is the end of life. And in the after delivery, there is nothing but darkness and silence and oblivion. It takes us nowhere. Well, I don't know, said the second, but certainly we will meet mother and she will take care of us. The first replied, mother, you actually believe in mother? That's laughable. If mother exists, then where is she now? The second said, she is all around us. We are surrounded by her. We are of her. It is in her that we live. Without her, this world would not and could not exist. Said the first, well, I don't see her, so it's only logical that she doesn't exist. To which the second replied, sometimes when you're in silence and you focus and you really listen, you can perceive her presence and you can hear her loving voice calling down from above. And that was written by a guy whose name I cannot even begin to pronounce. My friends, make sure you go to timjacobslive.com. Listen to all of the previous shows there. Go to my Facebook page, Life360 with Tim Jacobs, and like the page. And as always, remember that Jesus came that you may have life and have it to the full. So go out there, do something fun, do something crazy, and enjoy yourself, but do it in a way that brings honor to God and fill your soul with His Word. And don't forget the God, that Jesus came that you may have life and have it to the full. And we will see you next Tuesday on Life360 with Tim Jacobs. <laughs>